0: Happy Father's Day, Uh, whether you are a biological father, an adoptive father, a grandfather, happy Father's Day. And whether you're in this room, in the hall or in your home, it is not the centre of our time today, but it is right for us to acknowledge it. It is good for us to acknowledge the place of men and particularly fatherhood in our lives because it's a good gift from God and not just a good gift, it's critical to our health to the health of our families in our homes, our community, and to this family, your church family. And so uh, I know it's at odds now increasingly with the progressive voice, but men, dads, your role is critical. And not just the role, but that we would be men who see the significance of it and step up in humility by grace to be men who would love and serve our families. And so keep going, keep going. Your little family, our big family needs you. And so we thank God for his gift of fatherhood. And we do gather actually to consider profound things of a father and a son, which is the centre of our gathering today as we'll come to. But I don't know, dads, how your morning has been so far, whether you've had a nice brekkie or whether there's a meal ahead of you. I've been out early and I've got the... The, the good gift of having my family in front of me this morning and so I don't know what you've got wrapped up for me at home but the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is the lamb roast which you put on yeah good We've got a slow, we've got a slow-cooked lamb roast which is what I'm stinging to get to because a meal is not just about food It's not just about satisfying our physical needs it's about relationship isn't it? Uh, a meal at least ought to be about relationships. Sometimes I won't name names. Some of the kids will just hoe down their dinner and still with food in their mouths. They're like, can I do the No, <laughs> no, no. Stay, sit, listen, engage, relate. Meals are a very profound context for intimate relationship. And here's the thing, if you want to understand the message of the Bible, one way you can do it is by following the meals. See, the Bible opens up in Genesis with the creation account where God has made Adam and Eve in his perfect world who are free to eat from any tree in the garden except one. And so every meal that first humanity enjoy is in the intimate presence of God. Tragically, that doesn't last long. Humanity throw off the rule of God and are cast out of his presence, no longer able to live, eat in the presence of God. That's how the Bible opens. But then when you get to the very end of the Bible, Revelation, we get this picture of a future meal. And the vision of this meal is that, again, God is seated at the table with his people. And the menu, it's exquisite. Fine meats good wine. But that's not what the focus on. The focus is on the relationship. Again, God's people eating at the table with God. Now, between those two meals in the Bible, there's a whole lot of meals recorded. But this morning, we come to the most significant one, which is the last meal that Jesus will ever eat on earth. He's about to die. It's called the Last Supper, which has become known as the Lord's Supper or Communion. And it's a meal that Jesus has been preparing for for a long, long time. Longer than we prepare for the Christmas meal, right? Some of us are about to do the ham thing, get it all right. Jesus has been preparing for this meal since he was born. In fact, the very purpose of his birth is to bring him to this point. Matthew's gospel has been building up to these last three chapters, which are the climax, which the meal kicks off for us. And so here's the thing about this meal. If we understand it rightly, it takes us to the centre of who Jesus is, what he's all about, and the centre of the Bible. And so if you are new to these things, whether you've been kind of dragged along in person or on the screen, Really good part of the Bible to hear what it's all about. And my plan is to take us through it under three headings. Number one, Jesus is the host of this meal. Jesus is the host. See, in verses 17 to 19 there, we see that Jesus talks about preparations to celebrate Passover, Passover has appeared quite a number of times through this text, and so a bit of background on it is really important for us to understand the world in which Jesus is operating out of. Because for the first century Jew, 2,000 years ago, Passover was way bigger than Christmas is to the 21st century Aussie, way, way bigger. It had been celebrated for over a 1,000 years, and As this meal was celebrated annually, the the meal was led by the elder. The elder of the family would host the meal. And so it's quite significant here that Jesus hasn't been invited to someone's home to enjoy Passover. He is the host. He's making the preparations. He's going to lead his disciples through it. Now, the thing about this meal is that, The tradition had been, it was organised around four cups of wine, which connected to a fourfold promise out of Exodus chapter 6, that God would take his people out of Egypt, free them from slavery, that he would display his mighty power, and that they again would be in his presence. The first cup of wine in the meal was connected to a blessing that the elder would pronounce over the feast, the first cup would be drunk and the food would be brought out. Then the youngest child of the family would ask the elder, what's this about? What are we doing? Now that's not because they didn't know. That's because this was a night about remembering. I'll never forget when one of you, I I'd said to you, oh, I, I love seeing this particular thing that you've done because it makes me remember you. And my kid at the time went, Daddy, do you forget me? (laughs) No, 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 no. Remembering isn't necessarily recalling something that you'd forgotten, but rather bringing it to the front of mind to reflect on. And this night, the elder would recall, would remember the Exodus story. The story where some 1500 years earlier, God had rescued their ancient ancestors out of the land of Egypt where they had been under the iron fist of Pharaoh in slavery and servitude. And God did this rescue by saying, I am going to bring judgment upon this land, Egypt, such that the firstborn son in every home, even in cattle, will die unless... You take a lamb, you slaughter it, and you take the blood and you paint it over the doorposts and you stay inside that home. If you do that, I, God, will pass over you. The judgment of death will pass over you. You will be spared. After the story had been retold, they would then sing some of the psalms. Then the second cup was drunk, another blessing pronounced, and the bread was handed around and the meal proper started. After the food had been eaten, the third cup was drunk with another blessing, more singing of the Psalms, before the fourth and final cup was drunk to finish the meal before midnight. So, here's Jesus hosting the Passover meal, the meal that Jews had been celebrating for centuries. But here's the thing. As Jesus hosts this meal, he's not just remembering Passover, which is what all the Jewish families did. He's reinterpreting it. And this is where things get radical. Jesus is the host of this meal. But secondly, Jesus is the meal. He takes two of the elements, the bread and the wine, and he drastically changes their meaning from the Passover tradition. See, the custom was and always had been that when the bread was broken, the elder would say these words, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of slavery. But have a look at verse 26. Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Wow. These words have been around for 2000 years now and around Christians and churches and traditions so that they can actually lose their impact on us. A meal, put yourself in Jesus' time in this room, a meal that for over a 1,000 years had pointed the people back to the work of God, the attention was pointed away from that gathering to what God had done in history, Jesus is now saying, no, 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 look at me. I am the meal. In context, it's, just, it's hard to imagine how, how radical this was. I mean, you ask the average Coastie, what comes to mind when you think of Christmas? Um, Family, friends, relaxing, slowing down, uh, enjoying traditions, um, crazy roads, 25th of December, like all of these things connected to Christmas. But then imagine if I were to say to that person, any and every person on the coast and the country, "No, no, 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 Christmas is about me. Christmas is about Jez Reynolds. What? Who do you think you are? No, it's not. Who are you? Christmas is about something bigger than any of us. Christmas connects us to something huge and down through the ages. If you're a first century Jew and you heard the word Passover, you had associations that were massive. It connected you back to the birth of your nation, to the heart of your religion. And Jesus rocks up and says, Passover, me. That bread that you've been breaking for over a thousand years, it's about me. Wow. Something radical is going on in this room when you understand the first century Jewish context. This bread is my body. Now, you might be aware that some Catholic and even Christian traditions have taken this as a literal statement, so that when you would come to the mass, say, that the priest would consecrate the bread and the wine so that it mysteriously and mystically actually in its essence becomes Jesus' body. Uh, something, Something mystical has happened to this bread so that Jesus is actually in his essence connected to it so that as the Mass is celebrated, Jesus' sacrifice is repeated in some sense. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes, you're in that room, your Rabbi Jesus gets up with a loaf of bread and says, this is my body. Do you think they're sitting there going, Jesus is wanting us to believe that he's, that's no longer his body, or actually his body's now an extension into... No, that's not how they would have understood. Is that how Jesus intended them to understand it? No. Just as he didn't intend them to understand himself to be a gate, a vine, a rock, among other metaphors and symbols that Jesus uses. That's exactly what the bread is. It's a symbol. And it's a symbol of his violent death. This bread that is broken is a symbol of his violent death, which is what the next verse makes clear. So you remember that Passover meal was marked by four cups of wine. Jesus is up to number three, which was after the meal and was attached to the Exodus statement, I will redeem you. God said, I will redeem you to his people. Have a look at verse 27. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. But instead of singing more psalms, Jesus refocuses the redemption by saying, verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. Now, again, as Christians or around churches, these have become very familiar words. And we can actually uh, be desensitized to what is actually being said there, that his blood would be poured out. See, TV movies uh, have desensitized us just to the reality of blood. I've never seen a minute of Game of Thrones, but I believe lots of blood. When you think about blood, when it's kept where it should be, it's a symbol of life. When blood is poured out, is spilled, it becomes a symbol of death. That's what this wine symbolizes. But no ordinary death, which is made clear by his statement, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, this is my blood of the covenant? Well, again, to understand Jesus, we need to go back into the context in which he is operating or operating out of the Old Testament. Come back to Exodus 19. If you've got a Bible, if not, that's cool. Just listen in. Back to Exodus 19. The context is that God has just rescued Israel out of Egypt, out of the oppression of Pharaoh. And verse 5, he says to the people, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. See the word covenant there? You keep my covenant. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is an agreement between two parties like a marriage. Marriage is a covenant and it's a very serious agreement. You've heard the expression to cut a deal. You you cut a deal with someone, maybe in business. This goes back to an ancient ritual where an agreement was made between two parties and so serious were you about upholding your end of the agreement that you would take animals and you would cut them in half you would spill spill blood so that if you were to fail to upkeep your part of the agreement, might your lot be the same as this animal. So in the Bible, a covenant is a pledge to the death, which just by the by is why marriage is such a profound relationship covenant in the Bible. Now here... The covenant partners are God and the people of Israel. And God, his part of the agreement is that he would give great blessing to the people of Israel. Of all the nations, they would be blessed. They would know his presence, his intimacy and so on. What's Israel's part? If they would fully obey the Lord. God would bless them, they would know his intimacy if they would obey him fully. Again, his people would be at his table enjoying relationship with God. This covenant was based on God's faithfulness to be a God of his word and their obedience to obey him fully. Now, come over to chapter 24. We had that read by Jamie so well. Chapter 24, verse 4. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. And the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, pop quiz. What was the sermon on four weeks ago? You are like, (laughs) don't look at me. I can't remember last week. Well, I was preaching four weeks ago. I can't even remember what four weeks ago was, right? But I tell you this. If this morning, those of you in the room, possibly even on the stream, if I were to take this bowl which I had filled with blood from the bull that we had just slaughtered, and I were to come around and I were to splash blood all over you. That's a morning you would never forget, right? That's a sermon that you would be able to tell on your deathbed. That's what Moses did. This was the blood of the covenant, blood on them. This will be me if I fail to uphold my agreement to the Lord. Now, how long do you think the people of Israel lasted in their covenant faithfulness? About as long as you and I would. Not long. Not long at all. In fact, That's what much of the Old Testament is about and more. But much of it is to track through this this privileged people of God who have been brought into covenant relationship with God and to watch them time and time again turn away from him. To be an an unfaithful marriage partner, covenant partner, to chase after other lovers. But hang on. Remember at the start I said the Bible finishes with God at the table with his people? How do we get there? If it started like that and it got blown with Adam and Eve, if God again redeemed a people back into his presence, says obey me fully and we will dine in intimate relationship forever and they blow it, how do we get here? Through a new covenant, an unbreakable covenant, with a perfect covenant partner. See, this is radical. This is what the meal, this is what Passover, this is what Jesus is showing us. It all hangs on Jesus. Do you want to seat at the table with God in his new creation into eternity? Then it's all about understanding Jesus rightly. See, Jesus is the one that, as we've seen through Matthew, he lives a perfect life. A man, fully man, shared in our humanity, tempted in the same way that we are and yet never sinned, never was unfaithful to his God, only always ever worshipped him, had him at the centre of his life. Jesus was the only perfect covenant partner of God and therefore he merited, he earned the blessings of God, the covenant blessings of God, intimate relationship. But here's the thing, Jesus comes to do this on behalf of covenant breakers. See, Jesus is living this life of perfect obedience in the place of the people who haven't. So that if you would look to him and trust in him, his perfect life and covenant relationship with God might be yours, as Shion and Jeff so beautifully expressed earlier. The prodigal dad. Jeff realising that Jesus has lived the life that I ought to have lived but have failed. And he's offering it to me in my place. But hang on. What about the covenant curses? There's the covenant blessings. What about animals cut in two, blood spilled for failing to meet the covenant? We'll come back to Matthew 26. Verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Notice that. The blood isn't poured out on many. It's poured out for many. On behalf of many, in the place of many, as a substitute for many. Passover meal, remember, is ordered around the four cups of wine. The fourth symbolizes or symbolized God's presence with his people. But in this meal, Jesus refused to drink it. Verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Instead of drinking this cup, which pointed to and symbolised presence with God, actually Jesus is going to drink another cup, which in verse 39, we'll come to this in detail next week, is the cup of God's wrath a cup that symbolizes God's just punishment for the covenant breakers. The curses that come from being unfaithful to God is pictured by being in a cup that Jesus, the only perfect covenant keeper, will drink down to its dregs as he dies on the cross. God will pour out all of the punishment On his son, who willingly dies with it. Why? Verse 28. For the forgiveness of sins. The Bible is a story in one sense, grounded in history, showing that people cannot be good enough for God. That if it's up to us to do what is needed, to be in relationship with God and to stay in relationship with God, we will blow it every single time and we'll be lost forever. Our only hope with God for a seat at the table is a new covenant. A covenant not of works, not depending on our performance, but a covenant of grace extended to those who don't deserve it. A covenant that has been filled by a perfect covenant partner, Jesus. See, Jesus isn't just remembering the Passover tradition. He's not just retelling its history. He's reinterpreting it as he's about to fulfill it. So that as he would die on a cross, whoever would look to him, who would trust to him, God says, I will pass over you. My judgment on your failure to live rightly before me will pass over because Jesus will absorb it fully. Jesus is the host of this meal. Jesus is the meal. And finally, this meal is for unworthy guests because it's a meal of grace. It's a new covenant of grace. It's for those who don't deserve it and come to that recognition. This is love for the unlovely, which is what makes it grace. So much of our world operates on merit, on performance, not in God's economy, because none of us are good enough for him. See, look at who Jesus shares this meal with in the first place. Judas is at the table. Verses 14 to 16, he's agreed to betray him to his death. And then in verses 31 to 35, Jesus foretells of the disciples, his closest friends, who will abandon him at his hour of need. Peter will go as far as disowning Jesus. And yet, Jesus is at the table with this lot. Did they deserve it? No. But that's the point. This meal is for unbelievers worthy guests it's been one of the striking things about Jesus hasn't it through Matthew that he goes to he spends time with tax collectors sinners prostitutes drunkards the outcasts those who possibly are a little quicker to recognize their spiritual sickness and their need for a doctor And as Jesus has been doing that, as he's been eating with sinners, it's infuriated the moral middle class, hasn't it? Who is this Jesus guy? What kind of rabbi is he that he would... Doesn't he know what they're like? We're the good ones. We're the respectable ones. They're the ones who are typically slower to recognise their same spiritual sickness, their same need for forgiveness, come back in a covenant relationship with God. What about you? What about you this morning? Where are you at in your standing with God? Do you have a seat waiting for you at his table in the new creation? I'm having... Car troubles at the moment. Big car troubles. Over and over, never ending, one thing after the other. Car troubles. And after one thing is fixed, the next issue's in. And as I turn on the car, the engine light comes on. You know, that dreaded engine light, which tells me, oh, something's wrong, possibly seriously, probably expensive. <laughs> now, Do you know what I've done to deal with it? I've lowered my steering wheel so it blocks my line of sight because every time I get in the car, I have an emotional reaction. Oh, that problem. Go away. (laughs) And off I go. Until I turn a corner, actually, because the steering wheel is not perfectly round and when I turn it, there's that light again and I I literally freak out. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, I have taken it to a mechanic Uh, And he hasn't been able to solve it yet. The the point is, whether I like it or not, no matter what I do to try and hide it, there's a problem. Have you done this with your spiritual warning light? A light that would come on in your life because it's connected to a whole bunch of senses indicating that something's wrong. Spiritually, something's wrong. And there's a whole bunch of senses that are connected to this. Let me just give you two and quickly. Discontentment. Let me speak particularly to the dads today. It's possible that you might have so much good around you. Like... You're heading home to a lamb roast with a family, with a job. There's so many good things. Maybe you've got a super comfy camping chair coming your way that you plan on falling asleep on when you're camping. Hey, is that coming? <laughs> good. Our lives, for many of us, are filled with lots of good things, good people, great experiences, but... If we're honest, and it's really, really hard to be this honest, for some of us, maybe even many of us, there's a sense that something is missing. And I dare not say that, suggest that, because look at all these good things. I can't complain. Something's missing. A satisfaction, a contentment that endures, beyond the next present, the next experience. In fact, a contentment that would even grow and grow and grow, is that out there? Yes. Discontentment, especially in the context of great comfort, is a sensor attached to your spiritual warning light saying, you were made for more, so much more. You were made for covenant relationship with the God of the universe to know him as father, to be loved and cherished as his child. Discontentment is a pointer to something wrong. Don't put the steering wheel down. Don't think just more stuff will be the answer. Second censor is guilt. guilt. Um, It may be the case that like Hazy, You get the Father's Day card today that just says you're the best dad in the world and says lots of wonderful things, lots of true things I trust. But I've got those cards. Maybe I've got those cards waiting at home. Um, To be honest, I am so thankful for the affection, but I know I am not the best dad in the world, especially as I come to what God calls me to be and I hold my life up to, that I am aware that, man, there's a long list of things I do that I shouldn't, a bunch of things left undone that I should do. And this doesn't just need to be dads or men, yeah? We we all have parts of our lives that we would be terrified if others truly knew them. We, we all have standards that we want to live our lives by that mean it'll be a good life, it'll be a life well lived, we'll be a good person, and yet we're painfully aware that we fail even our own standards. There's a guilt connect, connected there. How much more do we fail the standards of a holy God? And so here's the thing. Whether you feel it or not, as we stand before our God on that day and he judges our lives as he holds us to account. No more kidding ourselves and others. We will shown to be guilty as covenant breakers. And that objective guilt, that legal guilt, if you like, is experienced subjectively. But what we find ourselves doing is putting the steering wheel down, blocking our line of sight, suppressing and denying and diminishing and... You know, the self-talk, the self-help, the self-love movement, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. No. Don't ignore that light connected to guilt because Jesus came to rescue people who are not okay, who have failed spectacularly as a dad, who have failed spectacularly as a child, as a husband, as a whoever. They're the very people Jesus came to break his body for, to spill his blood for, to bring forgiveness to. How do you get it? How do you have confidence that you have a seat at the table with God and his new creation? Well, not by literally eating bread and wine, not by taking communion, but by consciously coming to God in your mind whether that's quietly or out loud, and acknowledging yourself to be a covenant breaker, to be one who does not deserve a seat at his table and to ask for forgiveness and to look to the Father's Son, Jesus, dying in your place, his body broken for you, His blood poured out for you so that you might be forgiven today, tomorrow, next month, for as many days as you have until you come to that seat at the table. This is an unbreakable covenant. Why? Because it's not depending on us. It's depending on Jesus, the only perfect covenant partner of God. And so whether you're a father or whoever, if you don't know this forgiveness, what better day than today to come to him and seek his forgiveness, to know the God of the universe as your father. Because he so loved you that he gave his one and only son. So that if you would believe in Jesus, you shall not perish, but have eternal life. And for those of us who know that forgiveness, who know ourselves to be his children, today is an opportunity to remember afresh, not because we've got amnesia, but to again bring to the forefront of our minds the lengths that God has gone to to bring unworthy sinners back into his family. Now, we might ordinarily do that by taking communion today, sharing in the meal as a family. We're not doing that today but we do plan to do that in about a month's time as we've relaunched the services. But you don't need food to do that. But your next meal, whether it's lamb or whether it's a peanut butter sandwich, is an opportunity to pause and to remember Jesus' body broken for you, his blood spilled, and to resolve a new to live for the honour of our Father. So if he calls us to honour our earthly mothers and fathers, how much more ought we honour the Father who has lavished his love on us, that we might be called the children of God, have a seat at his table. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, that we can address you, the holy God of the universe that we have wronged as Father who has forgiven us through your Son. If there are any among us this morning in whatever room who are not forgiven, who await to face the curses of being covenant breakers, please, would you bring them home today? Please, Would you point them to your son who died in their place? And for all of us, anew, might we live for the Father who in Jesus is pleased to call us sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.